I'm going to invite Carol. She is reading for me this morning. Um, we have a, a longish passage, and Carol was kind to help. Thank you so much. I'm, lead, I'm reading from Luke chapter 1, from verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by Lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remaining mute. And when his time of service was entered, he went, had ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Let's bow our heads and pray. The Lord has done this for me. He has taken away my disgrace. Lord Jesus, may we be like Elizabeth, be able to see your hand and your finger, be able to say, it is only the Lord who can do this. No man 
No human being is able and capable of doing it. So as we come now around your word, once again we ask you to breathe afresh unto us and to refresh our souls and renew our spirit. For your name's sake, amen. So this morning we begin two sermons until Christmas. And the aim of these two sermons in these two Sundays is to prepare ourselves for Christmas. This season in the Christian calendar is known as the Advent period. It is a period that is preparing us for the arrival. So what we're seeking to do during this period in the next two sermons before we go to Christmas Sunday is to ask ourselves, what does Advent mean to you? What does it mean to me? What does it mean to us? That's what we're seeking to do. Why is this period and season of Advent important to us? Of course, in general, that the idea of Advent is about getting ready to celebrate the birth of Christ again. That's what it's about in general. It's about getting ready to see and celebrate the birth of Christ. But for us who are on this side of the cross, who have witnessed the first arrival of Jesus, it's not so much about the Christmas, but rather it's about getting ready for us to meet Christ face to face. I was challenged by that because it's not an event. It's not something that we can do once and that's it. But it's an ongoing process. So what Advent helps us to do is to stop and ask ourselves, are we ready to meet Christ face to face? In the time of Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were waiting for the birth of Messiah. But now on this side, Messiah has been born. He died on the cross and he went and ascended to be with the Father. He is now on the right hand of the Father interceding for us. Yet again, we're waiting for him to come and put this world in order. But the question is, are we ready for him? So that's what Advent does for you and I. It helps us to get ready and prepare ourselves to meet Christ face to face. So for them it was Christmas, but for us it's eternity. That's what we're getting ready for. Now, Rowan Williams, one of the Anglican scholars, says Advent is time of waiting. Of course, waiting, he continues to say, is not, very, is not a very attractive word for us. We are not a culture that is used to waiting. He goes on to remind us of a slogan that was once popular but continues to shape our thinking today. It says, take waiting out of wanting. 
In other words, we like to have the things we want to have when we decide to have them. We can't wait to have what we want. Therefore, waiting seems negative. Waiting seems passive and unexciting. It is a boring bit before we get the exciting bit. But during Advent, we pause for a moment and look back at how the people of God have waited. How God's people have waited for the birth of Messiah. We remember waiting as the Bible tells us how. We go back, we read the prophecy of Isaiah, and we are reminded of how God's people waited for years. And as we do that, as we go back to all the prophecies, especially of Isaiah, we discovered that God's people waited for centuries with longing. They waited for the end of slavery. They, end, they waited for the end of them being exiled in the foreign land. They longed to come home, to come back to be with God, to be at home with God. That's what we learn when we go back and study the prophecy of Isaiah. We see these metaphors being piled up again and again. The metaphor like the dawning of the day. When do you wait for the dawning of a new day? It's after a long, long night. You can't wait for a new day to dawn. That's how they wait, the people of God waited. We see the metaphors of the falling of rain. We know that they've been walking through the deserts and there hasn't been rain. So, in summary, Advent is the mood. It is a cry. It is a period of yearning and longing in expectation. It is a period of waiting in hope. Waiting in hope for God, Emmanuel, God with us. And the story that Carol read for us so beautifully helps us again to learn how the people of God waited as we come to this prophecy to this man, Zechariah, who was one of the prophets and one of the priests who represent and the fulfillment of the promises as John his son is being born. They waited for 400 years of barrenness, of dry, where God was not speaking to his people. So as we come to this passage, the, the word that is going to guide our thinking is that what we have before us in this passage is the chance of a lifetime. That's what we have. It is a chance of a whole lifetime. If you had been a priest, this time 
in Israel in this time that is immediately before the birth of Christ? You would have been one of the approximately 18,000 priests of the tribe of the Levi in Israel. And those 18,000 priests would be divided into 24 cohorts, 24 groups of priests. And in each of that cohort, there will be about 750 priests. And these priests will take turns in their cohorts to go and serve for two weeks in the temple. And the way in which they, they did these um, turns, they would do lots to decide who will go. So in other words, they will walk and go to Jerusalem there and be there for two weeks. Once in every year, this opportunity will be afforded to a group of 750 priests. And they will do lots to pick up one among that 750 who will go to the holy place. And what are the chances that you would be one of those priests who would go and present the offerings and present the prayers of the people and pronounce the blessings of God to the people? What are the chances? So once in a lifetime, that opportunity will be given to you. So while they are there for two weeks, every day in the morning and in the afternoon, nine o'clock in the morning and three in the afternoon, there will be daily prayers. And that is the occasion where the people will gather outside at the courts. And one priest will go inside and present the offerings and pray for the people. And when he comes back, he will stand and pronounce the blessing of God to the people. The Lord bless you and keep you and turn his face towards you and be gracious to you. That was the blessing. So to be a priest was to be entrusted with this great and enormous privilege that came once in a lifetime. You couldn't do it more than once. Where you will stand before God and the people to present the prayers of the people to God and to pronounce the blessings of God to the gathered and worshiping assembly outside. So literally, it was a chance of a lifetime, an opportunity to be able once in a lifetime to get the opportunity where you are able to do this calling, this enormous privilege before God. And that's what happened to this man that we're reading about this morning, Zechariah. And before we follow him into the temple, let's take time and reflect on this man. Who is Zechariah? What can we learn from him? His name is Zechariah, and it means God has remembered us. 
It is such an appropriate name because God was about to remember his people. God has remembered us. And that is the theme of our prayers these days. But also that was the theme of the prayers of God's people in those, in those days. So his wife was Elizabeth. And in verses 16, Luke tells us that both they were righteous people. And that is to say they were living in a right relationship with God. This right relationship with God was demonstrated by their lives. Luke says, us, says to us, they were walking in all commands and requirements of the Lord blamelessly. In other words, it was not the righteousness which was somehow end them, this, their obedience, but rather it was their obedience that demonstrated their righteousness. It was not them being earning this righteousness and therefore they become obedient, but their obedience demonstrated their righteousness. So here we have this couple living a life of faithful and godliness and honor before God. But Luke tells us in verses 7, they were childless. They didn't have a child. And we know this in verses 16, that this was not the fault of their own. The fact that they didn't have a child had nothing to do with God's judgment on them. But rather, this was a sad and simple fact of their life together. And that reality of their life together was now irre irreversible and it has reached the point of hopelessness because Luke tells us that they were very old. They were advanced in years. Now let's reflect for a moment. What can we learn about this? This righteous couple yet living with this sad reality of a lifetime. And while they living with this sad reality of a lifetime. There are no fingers pointing at them. That it's because of what you've done. That's why you are suffering in this way. What can we learn today? I think it is appropriate to say that the so-called prosperity gospel has done so much damage in many of the minds of our people today. Because not only does it promise what the Bible doesn't promise, but somehow it has given many people the ABCs of accessing God's blessings. It has given so many people formulas of how to live a pain-free life, a blessed life. And I want to suggest that that has caused so much hurt and pain. Because after you have followed all those ABCs, you still find yourself struggling with the reality of pain which affects all people in the world. 
Yet scripture tells us again and again that many are the afflictions that befall a righteousness. But here is the difference. The Lord delivers him from them all. That's the difference of you as a child of God. Yes, you may go through what all people go through, but you have the Lord on your side who delivers you from all. I was talking to a friend yesterday, and we were talking about something that we were looking forward to, and it never materialized. And as we were talking, looking at it, and we said, now that we are on this side and we, it's behind us, I want to believe God was saving us from something. Was it painful when we went through? Oh, yes, it was. But now I have a different perspective because I know that God was there even in that dark season. And therefore, I'm able to say the Lord was delivering us from something that we were not aware of at that time, which may have costed us more than we thought what we went through was, deep, was deeply painful. So, we are not immune from these sad realities that we've just read because we are righteous. No, we are not. In fact, sometimes God wants to show off with us. Sometimes God wants to say to the world, look at them, look at my people. How they continue to want to serve me even when they go through the most horrendous of times. So, Eugene Peterson puts it beautifully in one of his books. He says, even for Christ followers, if the hammer hits you on your thumb, you still feel the pain. Do you want to try that today? And see if because I'm a child of God, will I feel the pain if I hit myself with a hammer? You will feel the pain. So we, we're not immune from the things that happen to those who may not be Christ followers, but we're different in the way in which we face that pain. We're different because we have the Lord who delivers us from it. So we can learn from the example of Zechariah. Even though he lives with this sad reality, he continued to serve the people of God. He continued to go again and again to the temple and present the prayers of the people and come back and present the blessings of God to the people. I can testify to that. Zechariah and Elizabeth, we can learn from them that being a righteous doesn't mean you are free from pain and anguish. But the second thing that we need while we learn from them, what we need to resist is the temptation to believe that because I'm righteous, therefore I am entitled to all goodness and all God's blessings. Have you realized somebody who's entitled is joyless actually? That they don't have joy. Because you see, while we celebrate God's provision, they say, but did you see next though that they have better than what we have? Because they are entitled. Entitlement causes bitterness. When we don't receive what God gives us as it is given to us by grace, we don't deserve it, then we become entitled and we become bitter and resentful. And we are no joy to anyone. 
So when we feel that because of righteousness, therefore we are entitled to nothing less but goodness and, and God's blessings as we define them. What that does to us, it develops this attitude of being entitled and which then leads to bitterness. And that is a dangerous place for any child of God. You see, what it does, not only does it cause bitterness to, to you, but it places you in a place where you think, if you would have an opportunity to have a conversation with God, you would advise him on certain things. Have you ever thought that? I have. You see, because when you are entitled, when you think you deserve better than what you're getting, you're saying to God, you see, if I have time with you, I would advise you on how to run the world. You, you got it wrong, God. I've got a better advice. I've got a better plan for you. You know what comforts me when I, when I, when I find myself in that space? I say, well, thank God I'm not God. He is God. Maybe that's why I'm not God. Because imagine if I was God. You, <laughs> you would be in trouble. If I was God. Wow. And therefore we're grateful that none of us is God. Because we would be in trouble if you were God. Imagine waking up on the mood, on the foul mood. Everyone is going to feel it. So that was Zechariah, and that's the lesson we learn from him. Now we follow him to the temple. He's on his way to the temple. He got the chance of a lifetime to be picked, to be the one out of 750 in his cohort, to be the one who goes to the holy place and speak to God and take the blessing to the people. He's there by himself. He recites the set prayers which all the priests will recite. He prostrates himself lying down on the floor by his face. Suddenly, he is aware of another presence. There shouldn't be anybody else there. He should be the only one who is there. But suddenly, he is aware of another presence in the temple. And Luke tells us that there appears unto him an angel. <laughs> there appears unto him an angel. Somebody used to say, one thing I love about Alam when I come to the office in the morning is that it assures me that I'm the only one in the building. As I punch the code and disarm the alarm and then go into my office, I feel that I'm the only one. In the, imagine thinking that you're the only one. Suddenly, you are aware of another presence. Surely you would be scared. Surely you will be terrified. And that's what happened to Zechariah. And the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah. That's what angels often say. They like to do this to people. Apparently they are aware that people are afraid of them. And again and again in the scriptures, the first thing they say, 
don't be afraid. They said that to Moses, Moses is terrified. Don't be afraid. Again, Abraham, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, Zechariah. I wonder if God is not saying that to you today. Don't be afraid. Is that not the word for you this morning? Don't be afraid. We, we have so much that causes us to be afraid. But I wonder if God is not saying that to you. It's not part of my prep. But as a charismatic and a Pentecostal, I allow the Spirit from time to time to interfere on my notes. Your prayer has been heard. That's another word, eh? Your prayer has been heard. I want to take that word. I've got so many prayers that I've been pouring. I want to take that word for me. Your prayer has been heard. What prayer was he talking about? Because subsequently, the verse that follows in verse 13b, it says, you will have a son. What prayer is he talking about? Is he talking about Zechariah praying to have a child? I doubt. I don't think Zechariah was praying to have a child anymore. Common sense tells us he himself is aware that he's advanced in age. So surely they prayed and prayed and prayed to have a child and came to a point where they stopped. So what prayer is that angel talking about when he said, your prayer has been heard? I don't think he's praying about, he's talking about prayer of having a child. I think he's talking about the prayer that Zechariah had just prayed as he was praying for the people. Remember, he was going to the people to represent them before God. So I don't think he's talking about the prayer for the child. So it was a prayer for God to remember his people. A prayer to bless his people. A prayer to give them peace and bring them the messianic redemption. It was a prayer for God to come back again to the temple and deliver them. That was the prayer Zechariah prayed before the conversation with an angel. This prayer was prayed by many other people before Zechariah. It is the theme of the Old Testament prophets. Because it is part of the set prayers that the priests were praying. Remember us, O Lord. Will you not revive us again? That your people will rejoice before you. And then suddenly the angel responded and said, your prayer has been heard. And God is going to answer this prayer. So when the angel said to Zechariah, your wife Elizabeth will have a child and you will call him John. He's not necessarily referring to the, to the answered prayer in itself. But what he's saying, that son will be a sign that God is going to answer the prayers that have been prayed for 400 years by God's people. John, who will be born to you, will not only bring joy to you and Elizabeth, but he will bring joy to the entire nation of Israel. Because the, 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 the 
John is not just an answer to you as a couple, but he is an answer to the nation that has been praying for 400 years. It goes beyond the joy that you're going to be experiencing. It will not only affect you, it will affect thousands of generations after you. Your prayer has been answered. Do not be afraid. That's what the angel is saying. For 400 years, God's people have been waiting. For 400 years, God's people have been on this barrenness, on this wilderness. 400 years and more, God is promising John Do you know what does John mean? John means God is gracious. Zechariah means God has remembered us. John means God is gracious. gracious. So the son that you will give birth to is God's answer to all people. You see, because John is going to go ahead and prepare the way of the coming Messiah. John is the last prophet between the Old and the New Testament. He ushers us right to Jesus. 400 years of silence, there comes this prophet who will speak and prepare the people for the coming Messiah. And he says, this will be like another Elijah. He will have the spirit and the power of Elijah. That's the nature of this man that will be born to you. He will make the people ready. Prepare the way of the Messiah. So John comes. Who comes after John is Jesus himself. Now I imagine Zechariah standing in front of the angel with his mouth open. What are you telling me? Have you, have you looked at me and seen me? He says, I'm old. What are, you telling, what are you telling me cannot happen? He was in the good company. He was in the company of the Old Testament heroes, Abraham, Moses, Gideon, Jeremiah, and in the same chapter, we've got the mother of Jesus who said, how can that be? He could not conceive how she can conceive a child. He could not imagine because she was a virgin. Now, as we come to the end of the story and we're moving towards the application, we are told the camera shift now from Zechariah. It focuses on Elizabeth. We are told that Elizabeth went home after the two weeks of serving the Lord in the temple, and she conceived, and she was pregnant, a child, And she says, the Lord has done this. Such words, powerful words. What you see, it's not any man who can do it. The Lord has done this. I hope you can testify like that as well. This time of the year gives us that opportunity to look back and ask ourselves, how have we made it through that valley? How did I... Pass through that difficult season. 
And my prayer is that you will be able to see the hand of the Lord and say, the Lord has done it. The Lord has done it. That's my prayer for you, that you will be able to see the hand of the Lord. The Lord has done it, and it is just the start. It's not the, the complete picture of what the Lord is going to do. What Elizabeth is celebrating is just a glimpse of the bigger reality of what God is going to do through John and later through the Lord Jesus himself. And that's what you and I in the next two weeks will be exploring because later on we're going to be getting the announcement of the birth of Jesus to Maria and we continue to study. So that's what we are in for. The Lord has done it and yet the Lord is going to do it. Greater things are yet to come. That's what we get from this. The Lord has taken away my disgrace. The disgrace in my culture of being childless. And those words are echoing the hope of the people of Israel. That the Lord would indeed take away their disgrace and shame from them. May that be your reality. The Lord has done it. The Lord has taken away my disgrace. Surely then this was indeed a chance of a lifetime. A chance of a lifetime for Zechariah to go to the temple. From that temple, it turned to this incredible conversation and incredible promise with great outcomes of great joy. A chance of a lifetime to go to the temple, having this wonderful conversation with an angel, walking away with a promise that will bring a great joy, not only to you, but to the, to the nations. We suppose when we study a passage of Scripture, to walk away with an application, to apply it in our lives. And I puzzled on that as I was reflecting on this passage. What kind of an application we can take from this text? I think before we impose any application, we need to accept the fact that this is a unique story in the entire scripture. And on that story hangs the whole Bible story. From the Old to the New Testament, it hangs on this story. As Luke begins his first book, because it's written too in the New Testament, he wants us to remind of all the biblical story hangs on this story. In verses 4 of chapter 1, which we've read, he talks about, he says to Theophilus, to whom he's writing, he says, I'm writing to you, Theophilus, so that you are certain of the things that you're going to hear. In other words, you've been listening and hearing about Jesus, but I, I want you now not just to take that and make it a theory, but I want you to make, to allow that to transform your life. The things that we hear of God and about Jesus, they are not meant to be academic studies, but they are meant to transform our lives. To bring us to a plate of, place of certainty where we are confident and sure. So what Luke wants us to know today 
is that God is doing it again. He's done it before and he's doing it again. And if he has done it again, he will do it again for us. That's what Luke wants us to do. God is doing it again. So if God is doing it again, he will, Luke wants us to put our faith on that God. To have faith on a God who continues to work through barren seasons. Even in that barrenness, if you feel you're walking through the wilderness, God is doing it again. He's bringing the rain where there has not been a rain. God is doing it again. And he did exodus and the people said, please do it again. We like it when you come and redeem your people. Will you redeem us again? We have coming out of the end of the year that was one of the toughest years. And Marco reminded us so beautifully as we were singing that song, Rest in You, that in reality we find our rest in God. Not in the economic state, because it changes. Of course, we must seek to be economically sta stable. But that's not where we will find our true rest. Not on the politics. Of course, we pray for political stability. But while we are on this side of eternity, we will never see peace because it, it will only be realized. We will not see peace that we will see when we are in the kingdom of God. The peace on this side is still tainted with sin. It's still tainted with brokenness. We pray for it, to experience it in the human standards, but there is a greater peace that God promises us, and it comes from Him. And that God is doing it again. And let's pray that God will do it again in our time, that He will bring life where there is barrenness, we will experience this life of the lifetime of you out of 750 priests given the opportunity to go and stand for God, for people before God, and to be entrusted with something that only God can do. And that leads us straight to the table as we remember Jesus who has done it for us on the cross, he went and took upon himself the pain of the world so that you and I will be saved. You are free from that pain that was meant for you when Christ died on the cross. So that, was, that which was meant for you, it was taken upon Jesus. And Jesus continues to do that for us today.